Welcome back to Weird on the Rocks. This is a podcast that explores the weird, unusual, strange, and unexplained, all while getting our drink on. I'm your host, Katie. Today is going to be my official Halloween episode, and I'm going to be discussing three different murders that happened on Halloween. These stories aren't as well known as some other true crime stories I've shared on the show, but I thought it would be interesting to cover these particular stories because they all happened on Halloween night, which I think just adds an extra level of creepiness to them. Before we get going, I want to share another podcast trailer with you guys that I think you'll enjoy. Today's trailer is from the Historical AF podcast, which is hosted by Kina and Natalie. And on their show, they also drink and they cover weird, gross, strange stories from history. And they just make it really fun and entertaining. people this is historical af i'm natalie and i'm kina and if you coast like we do you better strap on in hopefully you coast like we do <laughs> those poor virgin ears are going to get abused we are a historian librarian and the occasional surprise guest that delivered the funny weird spooky and morbid historical nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes plus once a month we bring you an extra af episode that is full of your stories and some articles featuring libraries and history in the news. Oh yeah, and we do all this while hitting the giggle water and gracing the world with our foul mouths and weird AF humor. So, if you like to laugh and love all things history, mythology, true crime, and paranormal, like you do, then we are the podcast for you. You can find us on all your favorite podcasting platforms. And to make it easy on you, we have them all available with links at historicalafpodcast.wordpress.com. And while you're there, check out the photos that accompany each episode. Check out our sources and learn more about us in our bios. All right, guys, we cannot wait for you to join us. All right, bye. Bye. Please listen. Right, thanks for sending that over and you guys should definitely check out the historical af podcast if you want to check out my show i'm on facebook and instagram at weird on the rocks podcast the website weird on the and twitter at weird underscore rocks please rate and review the show and subscribe wherever you're listening now and before we get into the good stuff tonight, I want to share this week's beverage of choice. Tonight I'm drinking a pumpkin spice white Russian. Um, I think I've mentioned on the show before, white Russians are my absolute favorite cocktail. I drink them all year round. Um, a few nights ago, my husband and I had our annual night where we drink white Russians and we carve pumpkins and watch Hocus Pocus. It's so fun. Um, so I had all the stuff left over to make white Russians, but I drank that in my very first episode. So I didn't want to do a repeat. So I thought I would just add some pumpkin spice to it and I shook it up real good and it's so freaking good. I'm not the biggest pumpkin fan, 
but this is just such a good combination. It tastes like a dessert. All right, well, let's get into it. Cheers and let's get weird. We've all heard the stories of children receiving poisoned or tampered with Halloween candy from trick-or-treating. Maybe some of us had parents who checked every piece of candy before we ate it, or maybe now some of us are the parents who are checking our own children's candy. But where did this idea come from? Is this just an urban legend that has been passed down through the generations, or did this actually happen? On Halloween night, 1974, in Pasadena, Texas, 30-year-old Ronald O'Brien took his two children trick-or-treating in their neighborhood. His daughter Elizabeth was five, and his son Timothy was eight. The O'Brien's neighbor and his two children also joined them. At one of the homes, the owner failed to answer the door after they rang the doorbell several times, and the kids grew impatient and ran to the next house. Ronald O'Brien's neighbor went to the next home with the children while Ronald stayed on the porch and continued to knock and ring the doorbell. A few moments later, he caught up with the group and handed each of the children a 21-inch long pixie stick. He explained that the people had finally opened their door and gave them to him. They continued about their trick-or-treating, and on the way home, Ronald saw a kid he recognized from his church where he was a deacon and gave him the fifth and last pixie stick. When they got home for the night, eight-year-old Timothy decided that he wanted to eat the pixie stick before bed. The powder inside had kind of clumped up and he asked his dad for help to get it out. While eating the candy powder, Timothy complained that it tasted funny and was bitter. Ronald had him drink some Kool-Aid to wash away the taste. Timothy then began to complain that his stomach hurt and he soon began throwing up and going into convulsions. Eight-year-old Timothy died on the way to the hospital less than an hour after consuming the candy. News of Timothy's death shocked the town and parents, believing there was a poisoner on the loose, threw away their children's candy or took it to the police station to be inspected. An autopsy performed on Timothy revealed that the pixie stick had been laced with potassium cyanide. The police immediately notified the O'Brien's neighbor, who turned in the pixie sticks his children had fortunately not eaten yet. When the parents of the boy from the church were notified, they became hysterical because they couldn't find the pixie stick anywhere in the home. Terrified that he had already eaten it, they ran upstairs into his room and found him asleep holding the unopened pixie stick in his hand. Apparently, he couldn't open the staples on the top of the plastic straw. Investigators found that the pixie stick straws had been opened, filled to the top with cyanide, and then resealed with a heavy-duty staple. After forensic testing was done, it was found that the pixie sticks contained enough cyanide to kill four adults. The police questioned Ronald about what house he got the pixie sticks from, but he claimed that he couldn't remember. Police found this odd because he had only visited two streets that night because it had been raining. The police then decided to question every house on those two streets, none of which said they handed out pixie sticks. 
Ronald was finally able to tell the police which home he got the pixie sticks from, and the police spoke with the man who owned the home, Courtney Melvin, who worked as an air traffic controller and could be confirmed by almost 200 people as not getting off work until 11 p.m. on Halloween night, and he was ruled out as a suspect. Investigators decided to look deeper into Ronald O'Brien and discovered that he was $100,000 in debt and had held 21 jobs over the past 10 years. He had been fired from his previous job for theft, his car had been repossessed, and he had defaulted on several personal loans. Police also discovered that Ronald had taken out life insurance policies on his children a few months prior to Timothy's death. In January of that year, he took out $10,000 policies on both children, then upped the policies to $20,000 a month before Timothy's death, and then upped them again to $30,000 just a few days before Halloween. It was also revealed that the day after Timothy's death, Ronald had called his insurance agency and asked about how to claim his money. And finally, the last incriminating detail against Ronald O'Brien was the fact that just a few days before Halloween, he had visited a local chemical supply store and tried to buy cyanide. Police arrested Ronald O'Brien on November 5, 1974 for killing his son and believed he poisoned the other children to make it seem as though the pixie sticks came from a stranger. His trial began on May 5, 1975, and he was charged with one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. Ronald continued to plead his innocence, and the defense pushed the idea of a mad poisoner being loose in the neighborhood. The trial drew national attention, and Ronald O'Brien was labeled the Candyman. On June 3, 1975, after the jury deliberated for only 45 minutes, they found him guilty of killing his son, and he was sentenced to the death penalty. His execution was postponed multiple times for different reasons, but Ronald O'Brien was finally put to death on March 31, 1984. On Halloween morning, 2010, 16-year-old Devin Griffin returned home after singing at his morning church service. He went straight upstairs to his room to play some video games. Around 1 in the afternoon, he realized that none of his family members had come in to talk to him and he didn't hear any noises in the home, which was unusual. He went to look for them. He went downstairs to the room of his mother, 46-year-old Susan Liskey, and Devin's stepdad, William Bill Liskey. They were laying in bed with the comforter pulled up over their heads. Devin saw his mother's foot sticking out of the blankets and he gave it a shake, telling her to wake up. She was unresponsive. He then noticed that her pillow was soaked in blood. Devin would later recall that at first, he thought it was a Halloween prank. He immediately ran out of the home and called his aunt, who called 911. Inside the home, Devin's mom, stepdad, and stepbrother had all been shot to death. Police immediately suspected Devin's stepbrother, William Liskey, age 24, as the murderer. William had a history of irrational behavior and violent outbursts. Dating back to 2002, when William was 14, there were numerous calls to the police by William's dad, Bill. Bill called the police because William, who was on house arrest at the time, was threatening to harm himself. When the police arrived, he attacked them and faced charges of a juvenile assaulting a peace officer. 
In 2004, William hit his stepmother in the chest, hit her in the head with a coffee cup, and stole her keys. In 2006, Bill filed for guardianship over the now 18-year-old William, claiming he wasn't capable of taking care of himself. Soon after, William attacked his stepmom Susan again, and Bill kicked him out of the house and moved him into a group home for individuals struggling with mental health issues. Bill continued to be in his son's life and visited him often. The night before Halloween 2010, Bill picked his son William up from the group home and took him out to a bar to have a few drinks with some friends. Afterwards, Bill didn't feel comfortable driving his son all the way back to the group home, which was about an hour away, because he had been drinking. Instead, he decided that his son William stay the night at the family home, something that usually wasn't allowed due to William's past aggressive behavior. The next morning, Halloween, Devin Griffin woke up and got Got dressed for his church recital. As he was leaving the house, he didn't see or talk to his mom or stepdad, but saw William in the living room. He said that William was acting happier than usual. Devin said, quote, he was more upbeat and more talkative. Normally he is slow and darkish. End quote. Devin also recalls that William asked him where he was going, what he was doing, and how long he would be gone, which struck Devin as odd because usually William wouldn't care. Shortly after Devin left for church, William shot his father, stepmother, and stepbrother to death as they lay sleeping in their beds. After the murders, he took the family's truck and drove an hour away to the family hunting cabin. Police found him quickly and arrested him. Investigators found that Bill Liskey had been shot five times in the head and face at close range. Susan Liskey had been shot three times with a different gun, and 23-year-old Derek Griffin had been hit in the head several times with a hammer, which they later found in the home. William Liskey's trial started in September of 2011, where he pled guilty to three counts of aggravated murder. His defense attorney argued that William was taking a medication for schizophrenia that should not have been combined with alcohol, and that was the reason he committed the murders. The court also ruled that William was legally sane and capable to stand trial. William stood up and spoke to the judge and jury, saying, quote, I loved my dad very much, and it makes me feel sick every time I think about what I did. I can't really explain why this had to happen, but I think most of all it had to do with my mental illness, end quote. William was sentenced to three life terms in prison. He was moved to the Ross Correctional Institution and, in 2015, after serving four years of his sentence, 29-year-old William Liskey was found dead in his prison cell from a self-inflected wound. On Halloween night, 2004, Adrian Insogna, Leslie Mazzara, and Lauren Minza, all 26 and living together in a house in Napa, California, decided to go to bed after a night of handing out candy to trick-or-treaters. Adrian Insogna was a civil engineer working at the Napa Sanitation District. She loved playing volleyball and was described by friends and family as being fiercely competitive. Leslie Mazzara was born and raised in South Carolina, where she was a beauty queen, but moved to Napa earlier that year to be closer to her mom. She worked at a local winery as a tour guide, and Lauren Minza coached volleyball at a local community college. 
Around midnight that night, Lauren Minza woke up to a loud noise and her dog growling. Then she heard what she later described as a blood-curdling scream, followed by glass breaking and heavy footsteps running down the stairs. Lauren, afraid for her life, ran into the backyard through the back door. She hid in a bush, terrified that whoever was in the house saw her run out. She waited for what seemed like forever, then saw a person climb out of the window and run away. After she thought it was safe, Lauren re-entered the home to check on her roommates. She found Leslie Mazzara laying in the doorway of her bedroom in a puddle of her own blood. She then found Adrian Insogna crouched behind her bed, alive and bleeding heavily from multiple stab wounds. Lauren tried to call 911, but the landline had been disconnected. She then called on her cell phone. When paramedics arrived, Leslie was pronounced dead on the scene, and sadly, Adrian died en route to the hospital. Lauren was able to tell the police that the killer was definitely a man based off of his build, but could not provide any more description. Police were puzzled by the murders because nothing was stolen and the women were not sexually assaulted. They did not know what the motive might have been. Investigators collected evidence from the home and over the next year, they interviewed over 1,300 people and collected 218 DNA samples. In September of 2005, almost a year after the murders, police announced that they had found a cigarette butt in the yard of the home and that it was the brand Camel Turkish Gold, a very rare and new cigarette brand. From DNA found on the cigarette, they were able to do genetic testing, which showed that the murderer would have light hair, blue or green eyes, and be of Northwestern European ancestry. They urged the community to contact them if they knew someone who smoked that brand of cigarettes and matched that profile. But investigators wouldn't have to wait long because just a few days later, Eric Koppel turned himself in and confessed to the murders. And it turns out this wasn't a random attack by a psychotic killer. One of the girls actually knew Eric. Adrian and Sogna was good friends with Eric's fiance, Lily Prudhomme, whom she had met while working at the Napa Sanitation District. Lily and Eric had visited the girl's home on several occasions, coming over to hang out with Adrian and drink wine. In fact, Lily and Eric had been having relationship problems and eventually broke off their engagement. After this, Lily and Adrian became even closer, and Lily confided in Adrian about her problems with Eric. The two women even had plans to visit Australia together soon. Lily Prudhomme would later tell police that Halloween night, just a few hours before the murders, she had seen Eric at a Halloween party and they got into a big fight about their broken engagement. She said when he left the party, he seemed very distraught and upset. After the murders of Leslie and her best friend Adrian, Lily felt alone and heartbroken over losing her best friend in such a gruesome way, and Eric and her rekindled their relationship and got married in February of 2005. Little did she know, her new husband was the man who killed her best friend, and he would be turning himself in for the murder just nine months after their wedding day. After Eric Koppel turned himself in, police found that his DNA was a match to the cigarette butt and he was charged with the murders of Leslie Mazzara and Adrian Insogna. 
Koppel's trial started in January of 2007, where he showed remorse and shame for his actions. He said, quote, I cannot fathom an explanation for my sinful deeds, the terrible agony inflicted upon a great number of people. My relationship with Lily was in jeopardy and crashing. It was all like it fertilized the seed of anger in my heart. There was rage inside me. If I had only listened to those who pleaded with me to get help I needed, end quote. Although he never stated exactly what his motive was, it is believed that he was jealous of the growing friendship between his ex-fiancé and Adrian, and that he killed her in a fit of jealous rage. He most likely killed Leslie just because she was there and in the way. Lily Prudhomme says that she had no idea her husband was responsible for killing her best friend and her roommate. But during Eric's trial, she stood up and said, quote, In the days before he confessed, I knew something was terribly bothering him. I told him, Eric, there is nothing in this world that you could do to make me love you less. Those words are just as true today as they were that afternoon, end quote. Eric Koppel was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, which he pled guilty to, and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He is currently serving his sentence in Pleasant Valley State Prison in California. All right, well, that's going to be it for today's Halloween episode. I hope you guys enjoyed, and I'm wondering if you've heard of any of these murders before. Did you know about Ronald O'Brien who poisoned his own son on Halloween? I have definitely heard those myths and, you know, urban legends about poison candy, and it's really scary that this actually did happen. And I'm wondering if any of you have heard of the murders of the girls in Napa. Um, Napa is not too far from where I live in Northern California, and I know a lot of my listeners live in this area too. And I had never heard of this one until I Googled Halloween murder. So I'm wondering if any of you had heard of it before. As always, let me know what you guys think. I would love to talk to you about this episode and whatever your plans are for Halloween. I hope you have fun and stay safe out there. You can find the show on Facebook and Instagram at Weird on the Rocks podcast, the website weirdontherocks.weebly.com and Twitter at weird underscore rocks. And until next time, cheers and stay weird and spooky. was a Titan Cast episode.